Well, a couple of different things have uh, come together recently, and since we're uh, still in the middle of a natural break from our uh, work through the book of Matthew, as elders, uh, we decided uh, to continue the break and use this time to highlight those things that have come together. Uh, The first is the fact that over the next five weeks, including this week, we will have a baptism, and then the Lord's Supper, and then another baptism, and then professions of faith, and then on June 5th, uh, another baptism. And this is very significant for our church community because these events picture some of the main ways uh, that God strengthens the fabric of a community. So as we talked about this as elders and we celebrated it, uh, we agreed that this would be a good time to highlight what the Bible has to say about community and about church membership. And so we could all remind ourselves of the significance of what's happening over the next several weeks. Now, we did touch on some of these concepts a few months back when we looked at the Lord's Supper, but we didn't really tie them all together. Uh, And so this morning, what we're going to do, and then over the next uh, five weeks, is tie those loose ends together. The other thing uh, that has come together recently, as many of you read about in the email that went out on Friday... Uh, is that we've updated the mission statement for the church. And anytime any kind of organization updates their mission statement, the question is always, why? And, well, what was wrong with the mission statement that we did have? And the answer to that question is, we wanted a mission statement that was a little more portable. Um, One that everyone could easily memorize, one that I could reference and remind us of as we work through various passages of the Bible, Uh, And in order to do that, we simply needed something shorter. Uh, The previous mission statement was 46 words long. Uh, The new mission statement is only 17 words long. We also wanted a mission statement that was more timeless. Uh, So for continuity's sake, we were able to bring two members from the previous mission statement committee onto this committee uh, to help us update the mission statement. And they said that the question that they asked themselves the first time was, who is Emmanuel? And how can we communicate that into a mission statement? And this is actually a great question to ask when trying to come up with a mission statement. But what happens if a manual changes? Uh, One of the key lines in the previous mission statement was that we were a multi-generational community. But what happens if, for some reason, over time, we're no longer a multi-generational community? What if we can no longer do some of the things that God was calling us to do in the past? So the Governing Council formed a committee, and we set out with the goal of shortening the mission statement and making it more timeless. We wanted one that could still be our mission, regardless of our size, regardless of our collection of gifts. And in order to do that, what we did is we just pulled back even farther, and we asked ourselves, well, what is a church? What are the basic elements we see in Scripture that every church is called to? And let's make that our mission statement. Let's pour our time and energy into that really well and see where God leads us. And because that is the question that we ask, we also believe that our updated mission statement is really the mission of every church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because this is the mission that Jesus gave his church. So, this is Emmanuel's uh, new mission statement. And of course, you will notice that many of the same elements were in the previous mission statement. Um, But this is what it is. By God's grace... We glorify him, we proclaim the gospel, grow in our faith, and serve one another. And that's it. That's what we are called to as a church. 
And so here's the plan over the next five weeks. This morning, we're going to look at, by God's grace, we. So when we say, this is our mission statement, well, who's the we? Next week, it's going to be, by God's grace, we glorify him. The following week, by God's grace, we proclaim the gospel. And then, by God's grace, we grow in our faith. And finally, on June 5th, we'll conclude with, by God's grace, we serve one another. So, with that introduction, let's jump in. Our passage this morning is uh, 1 Peter chapter 5. I heard many of you turning there earlier. Um, but that is uh, page number 1,892 in the Pew Bibles. And uh, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 11. And since I don't hear any pages turning, uh, hear the word of the Lord. Uh, Peter writes to several churches spread throughout the Roman Empire. And he says this, he says, To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder, a witness of Christ's sufferings, and one who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, serving as overseers, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be. Not greedy for money, but eager to serve. Not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. Young men, in the same way, be submissive to those who are older. All of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. So there's two ideas that we will be weaving together during this sermon series. Uh, and these two ideas are inseparably linked. Uh, and both of them, as we will see, are clearly taught in Scripture. The first idea is that before Jesus ascended into heaven, after dying and rising from the dead, he gave his church a mission. A mission is when someone sends someone else out to go accomplish something. So kings send armies on missions. The navy sends the seals out on a mission. And the Lord Jesus Christ has sent his church on a mission as well. And the second idea is that of church membership. And the ideas of mission and membership are uh, tied together because in order for us to carry out that mission, we must become members of a local church. Let me say that again. We can only carry out the mission the Lord Jesus Christ has given to his church by becoming a church member and committing to a group of other Christians who come together as a local church. Which is why today we are looking at the first part of our mission statement, which is, by God's grace, we. Jesus, he gives commands to individual believers, 
that we are required to obey, but he gives a mission to his church. Now, I understand that that is quite a bold statement, that you have to become a member of a local church in order to carry out the mission that God has given to the church. Um, But as we go through these scriptures, uh, I believe that we will see um, that this is not as shocking of a concept as maybe it might seem in the first place. So here's our outline for this morning. First, uh, we're going to see that God graciously saves us into the church. The next, we're going to see that we join the church by joining a church. The next is membership is a we thing, not a me thing. And then finally, the church is the bride for which Christ died. So, there are no Lone Ranger Christians. That is an unheard of reality in the New Testament. When God graciously saves us, he immediately places us into the church. Uh, In verse 10 of our passage, we see that God graciously saves us by calling us into a relationship with God in Christ by grace alone. Peter says, And the God of all grace called you to his eternal glory in Christ. And this is exactly what we talked about last week, if you were here with us looking at Ephesians chapter 1. God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, Paul teaches us there. Then he opened up our eyes by showing us the mystery of his will for us in Christ. And we know that all of this is true of us when we hear the message of truth, the gospel of our salvation, and we believe it. And then, Paul taught us, God seals this reality to us by giving us his Holy Spirit. And all of that is what Peter is talking about here when he reminds us that the God of all grace has called us into his eternal glory. And when God does that, when he, by his grace, calls us as individuals into his eternal glory, he also places us into the entire family of God. Look at verse 9 from our passage. Um, Peter commands the believers to resist the devil, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of suffering. So when God graciously calls us to himself in Christ, we become part of this massive family of believers throughout the world. And pictures like this of the church are all over the scriptures. All of the images that God gives us of his people only make sense if, when we are saved, we are placed into this larger community of believers. Psalm 92, where our call to worship came from this morning, the psalmist says this, He says, the righteous will flourish like a palm tree. They will grow like a cedar of Lebanon, planted in the house of the Lord. They will flourish in the courts of our God. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul calls us citizens and members of a household. He says, consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. So we were actually once lone rangers. There was a time when we were strangers and aliens, but when we, by God's grace, are saved and brought into this large family of God all over the world, we are made with other Christians, citizens of a kingdom, and members of a household. Earlier in 1 Peter, he says this. He says, as you come to him, the living stone, speaking of Jesus, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. So when God graciously calls us to himself, he unites us together with other Christians into a spiritual house. 
When we become a Christian by coming to Jesus, who is the living stone, when that happens, we as individual living stones, we join together. And we all become a spiritual house. However, God does not just save us into this large, unidentifiable group of people called the church throughout the whole world. He actually saves us into a real, visible, identifiable group of people that we call the local church. Which takes us to our second point this morning. Uh, We join the church by joining a church. Again, there are no Lone Ranger Christians. When God saves someone, he places us into the care of a local church. Now, this is not to say uh, that a true believer cannot go through seasons in their life where they are disconnected from a local church. Uh, There can be many reasons for that, and sometimes it cannot be avoided, uh, particularly towards the end of our lives. But it should be avoided, if it can be. And I imagine that most everyone in this room who's gone through a season like that where you were disconnected from the local church will look back and recognize that that was not ideal. And that was not really good for your spiritual walk. That's because the New Testament just assumes that the ordinary way of navigating the Christian life is with other believers in the context of a local church. And this is clear from our passage today. But... Before we jump into our passage, just real quick, I want to point out who Peter is is writing to. So if we look at the first verse of the first chapter of this book, Peter says this. He says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So Peter is actually writing to several different churches spread throughout the entire Roman Empire. And we need to keep that in mind when we turn to our passage because Peter is specifically addressing the elders in these churches. He says in uh, verses 2 and 3 of chapter 5, he tells the elders to be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. Notice that God places his flock under the care of elders. But every Christian throughout the world cannot be under the care of every single elder. Which is why Peter makes a distinction between the whole flock of God and those under your care and those entrusted to you. So God is the one who graciously saves us, his flock, into his church And he does this by entrusting us to the care of elders in a local church. Now, why does he do that? Well, I think this imagery of a flock is actually really helpful in this because we're all sheep. And sheep are lost without a shepherd. And God knows the kind of creatures that we are because he created us. And he watched us fall into sin. And so when he calls us to himself by grace, he places us into a community of believers with elders to lead us because we are like sheep. And just like sheep on our own, we are foolish and needy and vulnerable. If a sheep finds a hole and a fence, what does he do? He just goes through it. Why? He has no idea. 
He's, he's going wandering off to go where he has no idea, to do what he has no idea. And, and very similarly, we are like sheep. We find holes and we just wander through it. And so we need shepherds to love us and to guide us and to come and to bring us back into the fold. Now, we like to think of ourselves as independent and self-sufficient. And those, those personal attitudes are, are built into the fabric of what it means to be an American citizen. But that is never how God describes us in the Bible. The Bible describes us as sheep who are prone to wander, who are easily led astray. It is so easy for us to drift. Just think about how much our thoughts, our opinions... And our actions are shaped by the ideas and the standards of our community. And so you pluck us up out of this community and you put us into another community that has different ideas and different standards. And our ideas and standards will begin to be shaped by that community. Because we are more moldable and more like clay than we like to think of ourselves as being. So Peter is writing to a bunch of different churches scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And he's telling the elders at each individual church to shepherd the specific flock under their care. And what this means is that each church is its own flock of sheep. And God entrusts each flock of sheep to leaders called elders. And these elders are the shepherds of the flock, entrusted to them. And they are to be examples to them of maturity and character. And for Peter to say this, it means there must be a defined group of people who are committed to each other and who have a defined group of leaders. And this is what we call church membership. And then Peter says this. He says, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. So there's a chief shepherd who is over the entire family of believers throughout the world. And the chief shepherd, of course, is Jesus which means that every single one of us, including the elders, are all sheep. And one big flock under the care of our chief shepherd. And then within that larger family, there are individual flocks of believers. So in our mission statement, when we say, by God's grace, we, we is referring to this individual flock of believers at Emmanuel, as well as the elders who God has entrusted us to the care of. And we see actually both of these ideas in Acts 20. So this isn't just a Peter thing, this is also a Paul thing. So in Acts 20, Paul is speaking to the elders of the Ephesians church, and he says this in verse 28. He says, keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. So an elder is a shepherd in the church of God, meaning the family of all believers throughout the world, which Jesus purchased with his own blood, and they are charged with keeping watch over a local church. As Paul says, the Holy Spirit has made them overseers of an individual flock. So even though the Bible never says, thou shalt become a church member, membership is the only way to make sense of these passages. Unless believers commit to a local church, who are the people overseers are charged with keeping watch over? If there is no such thing as church membership, how else are we to describe the people entrusted to the care of elders? 
And who are the people that the elders are going to have to give an account for? Hebrews 13, 17 says this. Have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority. Why? Because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. An elder is going to have to give an account for every single believer within their congregation. But they will not have to give an account for every single believer throughout the whole world. They don't know those believers. They don't have any influence over those believers. So it only makes sense that they would have to give an account for those who are committed to each other under their care. And sometimes sheep wander away from the flock. And since church leaders will have to give an account for them, church leaders are supposed to seek them out. Ezekiel chapter 34, God condemns the leaders of Israel for failing to do this. This is what God says to them there. He says, you have not strengthened the weak or healed the sick or bound up the injured. You have not brought back the strays or searched for the lost. You have ruled them harshly and brutally. This is why elders visit the sick. This is why elders seek out the lost. When somebody becomes a member of this church and they, and they no longer attend here, and the elders reach out to them, they're, they're not trying to find out you know, what they're doing so they can wag their finger at them. They're, they're wanting to know, where are you? You're a part of this flock. We, we love you. We've covenanted, covenanted together. It's, it's a phone call of love and compassion. Again, there is an identifiable group of believers, which we call church members, under the care of elders. Otherwise, these verses make no sense. But what happens when the elders do seek out a lost sheep? And they find that sheep living in sin. And that sheep, he or she, doesn't want to come back. We actually hear about a situation like this in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, where a man is committing immorality And here's what Paul encourages the church to do. Because he's unrepentant, Paul says, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. And so when elders exercise this, they're doing it for the purpose of that sheep coming back to the Lord. Later in chapter five, Paul unpacks um, what this should look like. He says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy and the swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you'd have to leave the world. But now I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or slanderer or drunkard or swindler. Do not even eat with such people. I believe Paul's talking about communion here when he says not to eat with them. And when he's talking about association, I don't think he's saying never talk to them, never be their friend. I think he's saying they cannot be a member at your church. And why I think that is because what he goes on to say is what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked from among you. Just place them outside the church. And notice that the church is called to judge a sheep 
who strays, who does not repent. And Paul makes it clear that this can only happen if there is a clear boundary between those inside the church and those outside the church. And the only way we can have a clear boundary like this if there is such a thing as church membership, where we come together and we commit to each other. And what is that boundary? It's life and doctrine. What we believe and the life that flows from those beliefs, that's the boundary. And when God graciously saves us, he unites us to a local church. And all of this is why the elders are to oversee who is and who is not a church member. Because when someone becomes a church member, it is the elders who are responsible for their soul before God. God entrusts that person to the elders. And the elders will have to give an account. And the elders are the ones who are charged with judging those inside the church if they fall into sin and refuse to repent. And all this takes us to our next point. Membership is a we thing, not a me thing. So this is a phrase I'm going to say right here, and I don't really know where this comes from or who originally said it, but it goes like this. What you win them with is what you win them to. What you win them with is what you win them to. So we live in a culture of consumerism. I prefer In-N-Out over McDonald's. So I will only go to McDonald's if my kids want me to. And even then... I will feel guilty about enjoying the greasy food that I'm fed there. But I would rather go to In-N-Out. Because we're all consumers with credit card in hand, deciding where to spend our time and money based on who we want to spend time with and what we want to spend time doing. We get to choose in our culture essentially every relationship that we have in this life, except family. And even then, we live in a society where it's really easy to move away from family. To go and to do and to be whatever we want to go and do and be. And in a culture like that, it's easy for the church to begin competing for consumers. We need better programs. We need to draw people to our church by serving the community. We need to have a presence on social media. We need to send out flyers. We need to have more polished worship service. We need to have something for kids, for junior hires, for high school, for young adults, for young marrieds, for families, for seniors, and on and on and on and on. And some churches actually have the resources to make all of that happen. And those are the churches that tend to attract consumers. And the truth is, none of these things are necessarily bad. But in our culture of consumerism, where we've all been trained to choose our relationships by whether or not they meet our needs, if the church falls into that, well, what you win them with is what you win them to. If you draw people in with programs and a production that meets their felt needs with no commitment, what happens when something better comes along? But Peter tells us that there is something more important than whether or not our church has great programs or production or whether it's meeting our needs. He says this. He says, Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith. Friends, we have a way bigger problem than whether or not a church has the best programs for our demographic. We have an enemy who is prowling around wanting to devour us. We may have a toddler prowling around looking for the best nursery, but he can sit in our lap if he has to. 
We are safer from prowling lions when we are at home with our family who knows us than when we're at Disneyland where nobody knows us. We need to be a church that takes that reality very seriously. The best churches may not have anything that would attract someone off the street. The best churches, though, are the ones that help each other resist the devil and stand firm in our faith because it's so easy to drift. And actually, when a church is like that, and they're attracting people who recognize that that's what they need more than anything, as a group of people to help them resist the devil, or they're attracting people who've just been saved and God is welcoming them into a community and they're hyper aware of what they need more than anything as a community of believers to help them res- to resist the devil, now you're building up a church on the right foundation, right? And sure, that church might grow and have better programs. That church might grow and have a more polished worship service. That's not bad. But the foundation is right. The foundation is all about our relationship to Christ and the most essential thing in this life. The writer of the Hebrews reminds us that we must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. And how do we keep from drifting? He tells us later in chapter 3, See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the very end. So we need to be a church where we can be encouraged by each other and encourage each other every day if that's what it takes so that none of us are hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We need a church where we help each other hold our original conviction firm to the end. And Jude tells us what this looks like. He says this, he says, Be merciful to those who doubt. Save others by snatching them from the fire. To others show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. And that's him talking about sin. Church isn't about you. Church is about us. We are sheep who drift. If we find a hole in a fence, we will go through it. We are sheep who desperately need each other and our leaders that God has entrusted us to. And when we become part of a church, we shouldn't look to become part of something that is hip or cool or meets our felt needs. We become part of a family that will help us persevere in the faith all the way to the end. By God's grace, we. This is the kind of church Jesus intends us to be so that we can accomplish his mission together. The Belgic Confession says this. We believe that since this holy assembly and congregation is the gathering of those who are saved and there is no salvation apart from it, people ought not to withdraw from it, content to be by themselves regardless of their status or condition. Church membership is not a me thing. It is a we thing. We don't choose a church like we choose a restaurant or a car or a country club. Instead, we commit to a church right from the beginning because it is a true church of the living God that preaches the true gospel and that properly administers baptism in the Lord's Supper. And we commit to a church so that we can make a covenant with each other to encourage one another and to snatch each other out of the fire 
if that's what it takes, so that we can all persevere to the end together. And with all that in mind, listen to how Peter instructs us to approach being a church member. He says, in the same way, you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders. All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Humility, submission, humbling ourselves under God's mighty hand. This is how we are to approach church membership. This is how we must think about being a sheep in God's flock. Because he is sovereign and good and his shoulders are big enough to bear all of our anxieties because he cares for us. Uh, Jamie Dunlop uh, puts it this way in his book, uh, Compelling Community. He says, when commitment and a local church transcends the benefits we receive from it, it points to something deeper. And what does it point to? It points to that reality that we all recognize that resisting the devil, standing firm in the faith, and needing each other to do that is the most important thing and the foundation of a healthy church. He goes on. He says, all Christians are to be meaningfully and self-consciously committed to a particular body of believers, acting as providers rather than as consumers. And the best way we can resist the devil in this life is by pouring ourselves into a community as providers, by, by encouraging one another and helping other people resist the devil. We actually benefit ourselves in that same process. He goes on. And this behavior doesn't exist to indicate that they are mature Christians, but that they are Christians. His contention is that this is what Christians do. Christians are graciously saved by God into the church. Right? And God does that by joining them to a local church under elders. And when we're part of a local church, it's a we thing. It's not a me thing. We, we pour our lives into this community to serve one another, which we'll talk about in a few weeks, what all this is going to look like. Because we desperately need each other. And because Jesus has given us a mission. And our mission that we accomplish together is different than the mission that he's given to individual Christians. As individual Christians, our mission is to obey everything Jesus commands. To evangelize the lost, to live quiet, ordinary lives for his kingdom, for his glory. But when we come together as a church, we have a unique mission that we can only accomplish together. Which is what we will be talking about over the next several weeks. And so finally, I want to leave us with this. Uh, this is just a very short point that I, I wanted to make sure to leave us with today. Um, the church is the bride for which Christ died. In one sense, it is true that Jesus died for me personally, and for you personally. But he, he didn't just die to save us as a single Lone Ranger Christian. He, he died to save us into the community of believers. And in Ephesians 5, Paul is speaking to husbands here, but I want us to hear what he has to say to the church. Paul says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by washing with water through the word. And to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. So Christ died.
to make us part of the church that he bought with his own blood and to make us holy. This means that our church membership is actually the most important relationship that we have in this life. If it is true that Jesus died for the church and then when he saves us, he brings us into the church and unites us to a local church, then that community of believers, that family of God is actually the most significant relationships we have in this life. Now, obviously we have a special relationship and individual responsibilities to our own biological families or adopted families. But the deepest, most significant relationships in our life is the church. This doesn't mean that we don't ever move or change churches. It just means that when we do, we transfer our membership to another church in that community as the first thing that we do. In fact, I would go so far as to say that we should decide whether or not we take that job, whether or not we go to that school, based on whether or not there's a good Bible-believing, gospel-preaching, sacrament-doing, pulling each other out of the fire kind of church there for us to go to. And if there's not, in my mind, that's your sign that that's not the job you should take because that's how important this is. Now, that's just my opinion. That's not the word of God, but, that, but that's what I see this, the implications of this teaching. We are God's people. We are God's household. We are God's family. And we are the bride for which he died. And Christ has given us a mission. He's given us a mission to accomplish together. And I can't wait for the next four weeks to tell you all about it. If you were a visitor with us here today and you are not a member of a local church, I pray that you will unite yourself with a church that preaches the true gospel beginning next week when you go home. If you live in Ripon, we would love for you to become part of Emmanuel. If you're visiting and you are a member of a church, I trust that you have been encouraged by God's grace to you and uniting you to that community of believers. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful to you for saving us by your grace and making us a we, making us a manual Christian Reformed Church, your flock to do your work, to be on the mission that you've given to us. We pray, God, that you would inspire us and encourage us by who we are in you and who we are together in you and what you've called us to do. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.